Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 12? My deepest appreciation for those who have been busy putting up our new screens and our new uh, um, projectors there. It's new, it's bright, and bigger. So that should help everybody a little bit, uh, reading along with me the Word of God. Another thing to think about today, it's uh, Pentecost Sunday. This was the day of the birth of the church, those 50 days after Passover. All right. Remember to pray for our big group gone down to the beach somewhere, Gulf Shores or Orange Beach or something. I, I don't know. Most of my family's down there, so I hope they're okay. And uh, they're suffering for Jesus um, <clears throat> on the beach. This is the last week that Jesus will live. In the time frame, I had quoted one guy some time back that said that Lazarus was raised on a Saturday. Uh, I failed to mention that that was just one of many time frames that are presented because that in itself would have been a Sabbath. But we know that Christ has taken some time. We don't know how much time. To withdraw from those who are threatening to kill him. And he's gone into the wilderness area to a city called Ephraim, about 16 miles away from Jerusalem. And he has been there because he is moving along the divine time frame of God. He will be God's Passover lamb. This particular day, look at it. Therefore, Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany. That means that this particular day is a Sabbath day. This is the, what we're studying here is the last legitimate Sabbath. The old covenant was ratified by the Passover lamb and then the exodus from Egypt. The new covenant is ratified by the blood of Christ and then through his resurrection. The ratification of those covenants, one in the old covenant during Passover, but in the, in the new covenant it's Sunday and the Christians immediately after the resurrection of Christ began to recognize Sunday as the day of the ratification of the new covenant because of his resurrection. So it's interesting to think that this is the last legitimate Passover. Now I understand that Jews still celebrate the Passover. But the law has been fulfilled in Christ. And we learn 
in the New Testament, especially in Hebrews, but we learn that Christ is our Sabbath. We rest on the completed work of Christ. In the Old Testament, on the seventh day, God rested because he finished. He completed his work of creation. And to honor his work and the fact that he would rest or that he had ceased from his work, he wasn't tired, he was through. It was part of their law in the Old Covenant to honor the Sabbath, to not work because you can't add anything to what God has done. In the New Covenant, Christ is our Sabbath. We rest in Christ because there's nothing else that can be added to what Christ did on the cross to redeem us. There's nothing else you can do. Now, the Holy Spirit of God, when you are saved, comes into your life put there by God Almighty and the Holy Spirit carries you through the rest of your life in the period of what's called sanctification. And in the process of sanctification, which will last you your Christian lifetime, it never stops until you pass away. That sanctification works in our lives to make us more like Jesus as we go through life. And the things of the world become less and less important. And the things of Christ become more and more and more inclusive in our lives. And that's the heartbeat of who we are. That's the process of sanctification. Christ dying on the cross requires no other work from you or from me. It's an insult to Christ. All that he did and suffered and he came out from eternity, created everything and that accommodated himself to time and space and died even the death of the cross. All that he did, he did for us, his own and we can't add anything to it. Thus Christ would say from the cross, it's accomplished, it's finished, it's done. My own are redeemed. Absolutely. But because the Holy Spirit in us in the process of sanctification, having been born anew from above, the things of life become different. And those differences increase throughout life, they, 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 the, the things that bring us closer and closer to Christ, growing in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter puts it, those things find us growing in Christ and becoming more and more separated from the world. This is the life of sanctification, but that is not adding to our salvation. Our salvation is already absolute. Now, Christ here is just days from the cross. This is, this is Sabbath day here, this day that they're meeting together. And it is the last legitimate Sabbath of the old covenant. The old covenant will be gone. It'll be done with. All of those requirements and all of those things, we study them. And 
We enjoy, of course, reading all of God's word and we never withdraw from the importance of the things of the Old Testament. But as we study them, it makes us wonder more and more in reverential awe of all that Christ did for us. We've studied Exodus recently, well, sort of recently, and Leviticus. And uh, we've seen the law as it was given and those meticulous things that are described in the law that are given for the tabernacle and then for the sacrifices and for the feasts and so forth. And we come to realize more and more how Christ has accomplished all of that for us. We are in Christ. That's the new covenant. This is the last legitimate Sabbath of God's people. Now, the Israelites won't accept it. These Jews won't accept it. They still don't, most of them, who are not believers in Christ. There's coming a day when they will believe. But that's not the purpose of the message. The purpose of the message is to make us understand that Christ, I'm sure, is consumed, and we'll see that as we go through this passage, is consumed with the reality that this is the last official Sabbath. No more of that Sabbath stuff that has been around for centuries and centuries as it was given in the law because Christ accomplishes all that those things in the old covenant were meant to foreshadow. And we don't trust ourselves in obeying the law, we have faith in Christ who has done all of this for us. So we are Christ's own. Now this is the last legitimate Sabbath. After this, there won't be another legitimate Sabbath except Christ himself, who is our Sabbath. And we rest in Christ. We repose in his finished work and what he has accomplished for his own. So here they are. Surely Christ would have been mindful. Now we're going to, as we go through this account, we're also going to take into account the parallel accounts of Matthew 26 and Mark 14. There are some things there that John doesn't mention. And John mentions a couple of things that, that they don't. But I'll insert it as we go. Therefore, Jesus... Six days before the Passover came to Bethany. Okay, he's on his way now. Literally to the cross. Remember, he withdrew because it wasn't time yet for him. He would die on the Passover. It was, he would be, as a matter of fact, we read in the gospel accounts that he was put to death at the very hour when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple. And this is God's lamb. He is God's lamb. This is what he's come to do. So he's headed to that particular Passover. He's on his way back from that R&R, uh, &R, that interlude, that withdrawal from his enemies who have conspired to kill him. And he was in Ephraim. Now he's coming back and he's headed back into Jerusalem. Bethany is just a couple of miles or so from, from uh, Jerusalem. So he's coming back now to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus 
had raised out from the dead. Now they made a supper there, and Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. The other two gospel accounts tell us that they are in the home of Simon the leper. Obviously, because of the laws regarding separation from lepers, he's been healed and you have to believe and see and understand that this particular Simon the leper probably should be called the ex-leper. <laughs> the ex-leper and the ex-dead man at supper. Well, I bet you could enjoy that supper. The ex-leper is providing his home. Some believe that Simon the leper was actually the father of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. I don't know. It doesn't say. That's just a tradition. Anyway, they're in Simon, this particular Simon's house. It's the Sabbath. We're going to see here in this account, as we've been seeing for some time, how Jesus is the dividing line between belief and unbelief. We will even see and have seen through history how belief can be very radical belief. We'll see an example of that here in this story. And unbelief can even be very radical unbelief. We'll see a, an example of that as well in the passage before us today. They made a supper there for him. And those who are believers are worshiping and they're worshiping in their own special way. Martha is a servant. She's one of those hands-on people who just comes in and starts working and serving people. She's worshiping like this. Martha was serving. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. Now that's me worshiping in a recliner. He's there, of course, with Simon and perhaps a few others. I don't know. But the point about Lazarus' worship is he was the object of great blessing. Christ can be adored for what he did for Lazarus. His contribution to worship is that he is a unique vessel and channel of blessing in many ways. First of all, death is meaningless to the believer. And secondly, surely death would be meaningless to Christ, even though he's not that far from his own death. So here's a household. They're worshiping on what is the last legitimate Sabbath. Christ knows, and we'll see that in the camp, this passage as well. Christ knows he's not far from his death. And on the last 
of the legitimate Sabbaths, Christ is with those who are closest to him. He's with his disciples and he is with his very closest friends. And they're enjoying a warm fellowship meal together. Then here's Mary. So Mary, having taken a litre of fragrant oil of pure nard of great price, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now this is, this is radical faith. This is radical belief. She's a radical believer. The only thing on her agenda is to adore Christ in the best way she can. She doesn't think about anything else except to honor and adore Christ and in the process take the best thing she can put her hands on. Nard was only found in China, Tibet, and India. So when this stuff was gathered, there would be a <laughs> there would be a big transportation cost. But the rarity of it ended it could only be found in certain limited places in the world. The rarity of it made it expensive. Getting it to market and getting it into the hands of a consumer made it that much more expensive. And then the way that it was uh, the, the way that it was boxed, if you want to use the word, the other gospel writer says it's in an alabaster box. Alabaster is fairly expensive. She anointed the feet of Jesus. Now the other, uh, Matthew, uh, is it Matthew? She actually starts with his head. And there's so much of it. I mean, she just lavishly pours this very expensive stuff. And he goes all the way down and makes its way to his feet. Now, in that they were already seated at the table, we would understand that their feet had already been washed. They would not have come in and sat down at the table without the appropriate washing, hands and feet. And then they would be seated. So this is something in additional, but it's also something that's rather shocking. In that culture, Jewish women just did not uncover their heads and let their hair down like this. That, that meant nothing to her. The only thing in her heart was to adore Jesus. Think of what he had done already. Simon, whose house they are in, had been healed from leprosy. Lazarus, her brother has been raised from a grave in which he was already decomposing. And he's seated there, and Simon is seated there, reclining at the same table with Jesus. His teachings rang in her mind. 
What could she do? There was, what can you do? Like Martha, one thing you can do is serve others and you do it in the name of Christ. But you can also adore Christ in the most lavish and unrestrained way possible. Now this stuff we're going to find out is priced at 300 denarii. A denarius is a day's wage. So think of how much you may be making in a, a year. Well, let's think of what it was worth maybe two years ago. <laughs> it was a year's wage. Now the stuff was in, was in the possession of the home, perhaps her daddy's home. And this stuff was like funeral insurance. They didn't embalm people. So we talked about this rather graphically a couple of Sundays ago, how people had to be bound up and they would start, in, especially in that environment, they would start stinking. So they had to wrap them up and then you had to pour these fragrance fragrant oils on them. And this was the best of the best. It says the fragrance filled the whole house. This stuff was really strong. Now suppose you went into your home and you had something that took you a year to pay for. And in just one setting, you broke it open and poured it all over someone. This is the kind of worship that Mary was giving to the Lord, the worship of adoration, how she marveled and loved Christ in an unrestrained fashion, not even thinking of the traditions, knowing that the stuff didn't need to fall on the floor, let down her hair and wiped that and no doubt saved it and kept wiping it so that it wouldn't fall. All of it preserved for Jesus. Unrestrained adoration in worship. Thinking of nothing but the beauty and glory of Christ. Christ. Let's say that Simon the leper was her daddy. If we agree with tradition, then that would mean at their supper table was, and they would believe his teaching at their supper table was God who had accommodated himself to a human body, who had healed her father, maybe, from leprosy. Brought him out of death. Only the creator could do that back in those days. And had brought her beloved brother. Already decomposing in the grave. Out from the grave. And there he sat with them. Oh Christ. Let me be the servant of those. Others who are believers. 
and worship you and let me adore you with unrestrained adoration and worship. Well, it filled the fragrance, filled the whole house. This was a very strong fragrance. Then you have the radical unbeliever, Judas Iscariot. However, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples. Now we go back earlier in John. Christ said, I have chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil. In John 17, when we get there, we will see that Christ calls Judas the son of perdition. A child of the devil. An offspring of hell himself. Seated there. About to betray, being about to betray him. Now these are the three words that identify the subject to Judas. Betray, thief, and pilferer. And Judas said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? But he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money bag and pilfered that which was put into it. He was stealing from the money bag. Now, this would have been a, a person's pay for a year. This would have been quite a few coins. Take it out, sell it, put those coins in the money bag, and what happens? Judas slips some out for himself. He's a thief. He's a devil. He's son of perdition. Now, the other gospel accounts tell us that after Judas made his appeal, the other disciples agreed with him. They didn't... Think about this until Judas brought it up. Someone who objects to adoring Jesus. It's unthinkable. Someone who objects to the beautiful worship from a pure heart. To take the best thing. And pour it all over Jesus. He's a traitor, a thief, and a pilferer. Therefore, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. That is a Staggering statement, if you think about it. First of all, Jesus is declaring once again to those who are closest to him that he's about to die and be buried because the fragrance of this oil wouldn't last forever, having been poured on him. The next thing to notice is that Christ makes a difference between temporal service and eternal worship. (coughs) 
Worship has become such a mundane and generalized word. You can ask 50 different Christians to define worship and they'll give you a bunch of different answers and most of them will involve music, right? Can you define worship? Oh yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's listening to wonderful music and praising God and doing this and doing that. Worship is to place yourself in the way that God has created you and draws you to himself, is to place yourself in the presence of God. Now, for a believer, that's more important than anything else you can do. Back in the early 1900s or so, the social gospel was developed. Don't get me wrong. Needy people should be helped if we can help them. Certain things should be attended to and Christians should take a lead in those things. But the priority in our lives is to bring ourselves or let the Lord draw us into his presence and think of who he is. It can be done by music. It can be done in prayer and meditation. It can be done through Bible study, all of the above, certainly. Some of the most wonderful times of personal worship for me is to read the scriptures and to read them emphatically sometimes long passages sometimes not so long passages because I try to be sensitive to where the Holy Spirit would have me to stop and there think about what I have just read and how do I fit into that how does that fit into me and I also enjoy getting on this is going to sound silly I don't care I'm too old to care I'd, I will search YouTube for a grand choir and orchestra from a church that I trust <laughs> Or a wonderful soloist whose testimony I believe in. And I just listen to it. Just let it seep into my heart and into my life. While reflecting upon the word that I have just studied. And absorbing all of this. And just trying the best way I can. To sit there in the presence of the Lord. Did you know that if I got up from that recliner 
and busied myself with anything else that people would consider good works, it would be a big step down from what I'm doing right there in the presence of the Lord. This is what Jesus is saying. You always have these things. Those are temporal things. They belong to time. They belong to something that is going to pass away finally. But you don't always have my presence like this. The last legitimate Sabbath. He's spending it with them. God is spending the last legitimate Sabbath of the law with these people in this place. Surely they sensed the presence of the Lord. She couldn't sing a song and how are you going to teach the teacher <laughs> the Bible? You're not going to. But you can adore him and from the depths of your heart in the best way you can. And that's what she did. Her worship was from adoring him. So you have radical belief. You have, you have believers. You have, those, you have those who were just curious people. You know, started out talking about the Jews. You have believers who, who, work, who serve in worship and they adore in worship. And they are the recipients of Christ's greatest blessings and are on display for others to see. That's a form of their worship. Now, a great crowd of the Jews knew that Jesus was there. You remember back in the last passage we looked at, the Jews were saying, surely he'll come to the Passover. Where is he? We have to see him. And the leaders of the Jews were conspiring, looking for him. And they, they told people, you let us know if you see him. And they came not only because of Jesus, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised out from the dead. This particular miracle, the raising of a decomposed man. Up until this point, the greatest of his miracles. This story, this account spreads like wildfire into the city and around the city, which is at its busiest time of year. It's Passover time. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish people coming for Passover. All of them are concentrating on the old covenant, the ratification of it, and the offering of a Paschal lamb. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And Christ within himself is about to bring all of that to an end in the sight of heaven. However, the chief priests, that's the other end of radical unbelievers. Who is it that separates believers from unbelievers? It's Jesus. And some are radical on one end and some are radical on the other. 
Jesus. He even said, I came, I brought a sword when I came. I came to divide, he said. So on one side or the other, and here on that side, way on that side of the chief priests who took counsel that they might also kill Lazarus. Poor old guy. He was just laying there rotting away when God Almighty brought him out of the grave. But he's at fault. You see how crazy unbelief can be? That they might also kill Lazarus. Because on his account, now this is how he worked. I told you, he's just on display as a recipient of the blessings of God. Because on his account, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This beautiful account here ends with believers coming to Christ. What Christ had done. Those of us who are here and we are in Christ We're like this. We have become believers on account of Jesus. He caused our faith. He brought us to himself. And has separated us from the rest of the world. It's a good thing to remember on this, the day of Pentecost. When the church is called out and separated from the rest of the world. In the book of Acts, what does it say after Peter preaches and those thousands come and they're being baptized? Luke says in the book of Acts, as many as God would save. <laughs> I like that. Christ is the dividing point here. And many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus, the faithful in Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. If God calls you to Christ today and into his salvation, you'll know it. It's in your heart. In just a moment when we're dismissed, we have deacons and their wives waiting to talk to you and pray with you about salvation. If that's what God has placed in your heart. Maybe you're here and God leads you to come into this fellowship and be a part of Shiloh and help us to spread the message of Christ in these last days. They're ready to talk to you and pray with you about that. If God has placed that in your heart. On your way out, stop in and they're ready to receive you and see you and pray with you. Prayerfully, would you stand 
all over this room and we'll be dismissed in prayer.